Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of the Project MedTech Podcast. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. For more information on Project MedTech, our events we host, our consulting and advisory services, and to sign up for our monthly newsletter, visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, and follow us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcast by searching MedTech Money on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. MedTech Money is an interview style podcast focused on demystifying raising and investing capital for MedTech companies. Also, don't forget to check out our two events we have this year. Our Midwest Showcase, August 30th in Cleveland, Ohio, and our Startup Symposium, at the Texas Medical Center for Innovation in Houston, Texas, October 25th through the 26th. Additional information can be found on our website. Any other questions, feel free to email us at info at projectmedtech.com. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Valentium. Valentium is a contract design and manufacturing firm specializing in the end-to-end development, production, and post-market support of diagnostic and therapeutic active medical devices, especially active implantables and other class three medical devices. Valentium's core competencies include electrical engineering and design, mechanical engineering and design, embedded software, software as a medical device, mobile apps, CGMP contract manufacturing, embedded cybersecurity, OT, cybersecurity, systems engineering, human factors and usability, and automated test system. With customers all over the world, Valentium works with clients in every stage and situation, ranging from startups seeking funding to established Fortune 100 companies. Visit valentium.com to explore your next step in medical device development. In this episode, our guests, Travis Manasco, Meg Powell, and I discuss 501 Ventures, Bio54, why we don't see more physicians take the lead at startup companies, the importance of talent for early stage med tech companies, the growth in Research Triangle Park or RTP, and what makes the ecosystem great, their best pieces of advice for startups, and so much more. So without further ado, my discussion with Travis Manasco and Meg Powell. Meg and Travis, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So, uh, Meg, we'll we'll start with you, and then we'll go to Travis. Um, introductions into uh, who you are, your background, and and what you're currently doing, and and feel free to uh, elaborate too. Uh, this is a good chance for the listeners to get to know who you are. Uh, well, I um, hi, my name is Meg Powell. I am uh, identified now as a serial entrepreneur. Uh, 501 Ventures is my fourth um, entrepreneurial uh, uh, effort. Um, I trained as a pharmacist here at UNC. I went to work in big pharma at Eli Lilly and GSK, picked up an MBA along the way um, at Stanford. Um, but for the last 13 years now, have been doing um, small startup um, startup activities. Uh, uh, it started with Aerial Biopharma. We had a um, drug for narcolepsy. And we, uh, I led the sale of that product to Jazz Pharmaceuticals. It's now marketed and approved as 
um, a drug all, all the way through the, the life cycle. Um, after that, I started a real-world evidence company in 2015 called Target RWE. This was before real-world evidence was a thing, um, or, or anybody knew what it was. Um, I worked with Dr. Mike Green, who was the head of hepatology at UNC at the time, and we created um, what at the time of our exit was the largest non-oncology uh, real-world evidence platform. So we had a big presence in hepatology. We had uh, GI, dermatology, asthma, um, so really kind of the non-oncology space and, and real with regulatory-grade data. So our, our data um, was and continues to be used um, <clears throat> to su supplement regulatory requirements um, in the U.S. and throughout the world. Um, I sold that company in 2018 to Norwest Venture Partners, um, the private equity arm of Wells Fargo, and um, quite frankly, thought I was going to be done um, after that. But that lasted about six months, and I uh, got the, the itch again. And so started to look around at what I wanted to do next with really two requirements. Um, one, to work with people I wanted to work with, and two, to um, work on projects that I wanted to work on. And so the first thing I did was assemble a team, 501 Ventures there, um, are four of us um, th that make up the main partners, all of which have worked together before in some form or fashion. Um, so we put together the the um, company. We identified ourselves as a life science accelerator because we weren't quite sure what to call ourselves. Um, and through that, started looking for novel IP to license. Um, the structure is such that we can take advantage of some of the mistakes I've made along the way and some of my other entrepreneurial efforts. And one of the big ones is always having to spin up and spin down companies and how much inefficiency there is in that. Um, from the basic uh, things of setting up email to you know contracts and relationships and that sort of thing. And so what we did with 501 Ventures is we put all the employees at the top in, in the Life Science Accelerator. Um, and then we started looking for IP. Bio54 is our first um, uh, company, our first a asset that we licensed in, what, well, Travis, keep me straight, but July of 21, if I'm yep. correct. <laughs> Does that sound yep. right? Um, yep. So we uh, licensed um, that asset into an entity called Bio54, but 501 Ventures provides all the management services associated with Bio54. So Bio54 doesn't have employees and that sort of thing. But we raised money in the Bio54 entity. And so um, that is sort of um, a little bit of our story. We um, are currently, we, at any given time, we should have two to three assets under, under development. And it's our, um, because I'm not creative on naming, you know, you'll continue to, to hear names like Bio751, Bio147, and all of that is my uh, my tribute to North Carolina and the highways that, that run between us. Uh, Bio54 was an easy one. Travis and I live about a mile away from each other, and it was it was the closest one. So that that's how we uh, got our name. But. Very cool. Um, okay, awesome. So I took a bunch of notes because... Um... That's incredible. Um, everything you have going on. So I'll come back to a lot of these things, but uh, Travis, uh, good luck with uh, your introduction. Uh, Hard to follow. <laughs> if I, I would have known everything ahead of time, I would have switched order. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, he's pretty uh, I, I, yeah. So for those who are listening in, uh, 
Travis and I have known each other for a while, but recently got reconnected. And um, uh, before Travis goes, I'll, after I was just messing with him, I'll, I'll also bump him back up. He is has his hands in a lot of different things, and you're about to hear all about it right now. Um, yeah, well, thanks. Thanks, Wayne, and um, thanks, Meg. Um, it's nice to be reminded, Meg, of all the things you've done. Uh, it's amazing. But um, um, so uh, my name is Travis Manasco. I am uh, a critical care physician. I uh, am from North Carolina, and I uh, trained as I went to Tulane for medical school and uh, most importantly met my wife there and went to um, Boston and did emergency medicine residency in the heart of Boston at Boston Medical Center. Uh, Boston University and um, was a chief resident there and then decided I really liked critical care and I went to fellowship at Wash U in St. Louis and did two years of critical care medicine fellowship at Wash U and okay and so I left Wash U and um, in 2019 and the COVID pandemic started in 2020 um, but um, one thing that uh, kind of happened um, you know, from leaving uh, fellowship and going into clinical practice, I practice at uh, Wake Med Hospital in um, Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, which is actually where I got my appendix out when I was 18. So um, uh, <laughs> an interesting fact. So I, I came <laughs> to the But as, as I, um, I had, you know, seen problems in the emergency room about patients coming in with bleeding issues and um, especially bleeding issues for patients on anticoagulants or antiplatelets. And um, I had been able to kind of stop some of these issues um, with, um, with using kind of a very commonly uh, used medication in the emergency room, uh, so much so that patients had asked to, to take this home and, and to have uh, new ways to, to use this. And, and so, you know, after a lot of thinking and putting my um, my head down and, and just trying to learn. I, um, I started a company called Alacrity Medical Innovations. Um, and I think I just admitted that I uh, didn't really know anything about this area. And um, luckily, I'm in RTP. And I spoke to the North Carolina Biotech Center and, you know, a lot of other kind of entrepreneurial uh, hubs that help beginning entrepreneurs. And um, they were able to connect me with multiple people. Um, one, one guy, Gavin Cook, um, was a mentor and then ultimately became a co-founder and uh, the first investor. And then through the network and, you know, by virtue of being here, um, I met Meg and um, we, you know, we formed, you know, uh, Bio54. And that was uh, almost two years. Well, we're getting almost to two years, which is um, wild. So um, <laughs> that brings us to today. Yeah. And then also, I guess also is, you know, as as I did Bio 54 and saw this, you know, this world that I really didn't know anything about um, uh, that my eyes opened. And so I I met um, uh, David Dare and some folks from Solus BioVentures and have joined them as a, as a principal, because I think that this the combination of medicine and science and and creativity and and um, strategy and business, I, you know, I've re I I think is just really interesting. Um, uh, so yeah, anyway, awesome. that's where I'm. Thanks, Wayne. Very cool. Yeah, and and real quick, just to <clears throat> cover Solus BioVentures before we dive into what we really want to talk about here. What is Solus BioVentures? Uh, I'm getting. I'm guessing this is a fund, but for the listeners who aren't familiar, uh, maybe just a little bit of background there. Sure. So Solus BioVentures was started. 
um, uh, by David Dare, who is an OBGYN and an investor. Um, and he was um, an angel investor in Meg, Meg, you know, invested in Meg. And, you know, this whole world is interconnected. And so some of Meg's companies. And anyway, so I, I met him and he had uh, taken off clinical practice and started um, uh, to work on Solus full time. And we they're a, you know, a life science a VC firm based out of Chattanooga. And now we have a, you know, Minneapolis arm and a an RTP arm. And so we look at early stage drug, uh, drug, uh, drugs, pharmaceuticals, biotech, diagnostics, medical devices. Um, and so I've been, you know, a principal there for the past six months or so. so. Very cool. Um, okay. So, um, let's, let's start with, uh, a question that you can both answer, uh, because this, this has become very apparent, right? So Meg, you're a pharmacist, uh, Travis, you're, you're an ER doc or critical care doc. Um, you're both clinicians, right? And so this is, this is like a common thing we see at project MedTech. We see a lot of companies, a lot of ideas. There's a lot of clinician founders, um, because you're the closest people to the real problems in healthcare generally. Right. Um, a lot of times though, we see is, is the clinicians don't necessarily, you know, they, they find the problem, but they don't want to take a step back from practicing enough to, you know, run with it. And, and um, sometimes they don't get it to that spot where it's de-risked enough for someone else to come in and say, oh, this is really cool. I'll take this and run with it for you. Right. Can you talk to me just from your perspectives, one being a pharmacist, one being a, a medical doctor, um, <clears throat> why don't we see more of those clinicians maybe want to take it and say, yeah, I, I want to run with this, right? Um, or at least get it to a point where it's de-risked enough for, for someone else to come in and take it. Yeah. So, so I'm going to let Travis answer that question first, but I will say, um, while I am licensed and have the degree, I have never practiced pharmacy. And as I tell anybody, if you ever see me as your friendly pharmacist, turn around and run. Um, so, so I, I don't identify okay. anymore as a clinician, but Travis yep. sure does. And, um, yep. I think actually our teamwork or our partnership is, uh, is a lot of, um, is going to answer your question pretty well because you do need kind of all skills around the table, but Travis, yeah. why don't you take it from, from here? Well, it's a good question. And it's one I wrestled with for, you know, a year, year and a half. And, um, even before meeting, you know, Meg, you spend, I spent, you know, uh, the investment of time was four years medical school, you know, four, uh, resident, you know, so 10 years, two years fellowship. And so, I think a lot of physicians are, you know, they, we've been delaying gratification for so long, we, you finally get to that job where, you know, it's, it's the, you know, the job and the pinnacle, then, you know, starting back over as a novice or admitting humility, which, you know, I try to do, but it's not always my best, you know, uh, like, you know, well, we all try um, and we could always be better at it, but um it's hard to do, you know, you've reached kind of this specialization, you're a subspecialist, you're a cardiologist, you're an interventional cardiologist, you're a, you know, interventional pulmonologist, and to say, I have an idea for a company, but I don't know what an LLC is, you know, I think that that might be hard. Um, so I think, I think that's one reason. And the other is time, you know, just time. And so I was just very lucky to meet the 501 Ventures crew that has expertise in, you know, development, uh, it, making executive decisions, you know, watching Meg make decisions on all these things that she's d 
dealt with, I'm just amazed. You know, I'm like, wow, that, I don't know how you make those so quickly. But but everybody has different skills, and and so it's been, um, you know, it's been really. I think I've been lucky in that instance to find uh, a team that can help help bring along an idea. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, the whole reason I started Five Hundred One is because I saw really two inefficiencies in the market. And I, I will tell you, most of my work is on the life science side, not so much the device side. So this is actually our team's first drug device combination. But, um, you know, it, it is more of a drug than a device in that it's regulated by CEDAR and will be, you know, reimbursed through a retail channel, kind of commercial plans, et cetera. But um, what I have found over the last, you know, 13 years of being an entrepreneur is that there are kind of two, two groups of um, ideas, or if you will, science. And one of those is a really um, business savvy, scientific founder uh, who attracts too much money, almost, right? So um, it, it's really compelling, can tell the story, venture pours, you know, 60 to $100 million in their Series A and the science, what have you. And they bring in, what happens is then venture, you know, professional venture brings in professional teams, which the majority of those are coming from big pharma. And they come run these single asset or single platform plays like what they did in big pharma, which is um, great, <laughs> but a lot of it unnecessary, right? Like, so... So it's a lot or overkill, if you will, and not to mention that they come with like really big salaries. And and the reality is um, a lot of these earlier ideas don't need a full time anyone. They need a lot of a part time of, of a lot of different types of people. So whether that's regulatory, whether that's you know development, whether that's clinical, whether that's toxicology, whether that's CMC, you know, you need a little bit of you need, you need an entire ecosystem. But. But you can't, um, the other kind of group of people, our ideas, if you will, are those that can't a attract enough money to put that ecosystem around them. And so the concept, or, or they get what I would suggest is kind of, um, you know, the B players, <laughs> because that's what they can, you know, that might be the capital that they put around themselves or can put around or that are more willing to work for equity or those sorts of things. And so, you know, you never get the best result if you're working with a bunch of B players, right? So so what we've tried to do with 501 is to spread, put the team together, which I think are, of course, all A players, um, and then spread that, the economics across a couple of different portfolio companies so that each of the portfolio companies can get access to the A player w when they need it at the exact time um, and only pay for the for, for what they use of that A player. And so I really think that that's what happens is that, you know, I mean, for instance, even on our team, it, it is a true team effort, right? And, and in our organization, we each swim in our lane or we each play in our role. They're not two people doing every role, right? We come together, we bounce ideas off of each other, et cetera. But at the end of the day, you know, I'm kind of responsible for fundraising and, and, and selling the asset and overall direction. Travis is responsible for scientific direction, um, you know, really bringing that clinical perspective into place. Our, our head of um, R&D, she's responsible for our, all the interactions with the FDA, you know, the briefing documents, the what have you. Our head of clinical is responsible for writing the protocol, implementing the trial, you know, et cetera. And so I think that that's, um, really, again, people often think it's capital that's the limiting um, 
uh, factor in getting companies to launch, I actually would submit to you that it's people um, and, the, and the right talent and caliber and mix of people um, that prevents, you know, something from being a good or a great idea to, to reality. I, I promise for those listening in that Meg has never met me before, um, and she's never seen the Project MedTech pitch deck. Um, but what you just described is our first three slides of our pitch deck, which is resources, specifically human resources, is what prevents companies from getting to where the market can say this is a good idea or not. And we've essentially created Project MedTech literally around this concept of you need finance, operation, commercial investment strategy support. We have all of that for you right here, right? In, in flexible models. Um, now, less of a venture studio model like what you've described, uh, more of like a consulting company model. But still, it's the same same concept, just we don't do anything in the therapeutic um, drug space. And so, now I think it's, I, I think, it, I obviously completely agree with that. Um, so you're not going to find any arguments from me. Um I want to touch a little bit more on 501 Ventures and uh, Bio 54, but before we go to that, um, you know, you brought up your, your, you said lack of creativity, but I think it's creative, right? Using a lot of the different state routes and roads throughout North Carolina to name <laughs> companies. Um, tell me about RTP, right? So, you know, uh, if you talk in, in med tech, and I'm, I'm sure farm is very similar, people talk about Boston, and they talk about San Francisco. If you're in medical device, you probably also throw Minneapolis in there, or maybe San Diego. And then you have like these up and coming cities that people talk about Houston, Texas, Austin, Texas, maybe it's just the Houston, Austin kind of corridor there. Um, uh, people talk about RTP, right? And so um, there, there's a number of different ones. I'm not trying to exclude anyone. I'm just trying to get to the RTP piece of this. But tell me a little bit about our, what is RTP? First of all, what three cities make that up? Um, and, and what is it like? Why is it unique? What's the universities there? Um, whoever wants to take that one. Okay. So, yeah, so RTP is um, the Research Triangle Park. It's the triangle surrounded by Durham, Raleigh, and Chapel Hill. And as you know, there are three amazing universities um, in each of those cities. I hate to admit that being a Tar Heel myself and given that the Duke-UNC game is tomorrow night. But but uh, that is the nod to 501. Is 15501 is the highway that runs between Durham or Duke and UNC. It's about, you know, nine miles that separate the two of us. And so, um, obviously, you know, three amazing um, academic institutions. I also need to throw um, NC Central in there. They have an amazing amount of um, basic science work that's going on. And, and, and then uh, A&T, which is in Greensboro, so the triad, so about, you know, an hour west of the RTP area. There's also a, a, some tr tremendous um, early stage nanotechnology types of um, di discovery and development that's, that's ongoing. So... Um, you know, that's what makes up this region. I'm a North Carolina native, and there's nothing that makes me prouder of um, of this uh, area and the great people and, and um, companies that exist here. I think RTP has, um, you know, I think it's been around. I'm not even, it predates me, but maybe the 50s or 60s. Um, and I really think it was when um, Jim Hunt was the governor, late 70s, early 80s, that he, when he was trying to change North Carolina's economy from 
you know, labor-based and knowledge-based that he really made this significant investment in biotech and, you know, making this a hub for that. Um, one of the things Travis has already mentioned is the North Carolina Biotech Center. There's also, also a nonprofit called RTI, Research Triangle Institute. Again, th these um, uh, public-private organizations or relationships that are trying to continue to facilitate and work together to make this a real hotbed or, or, or region um, that that is to be contended with in, in drug development. You know, it started, uh, I mean, I've been uh, in this industry now 25 plus years, and at the beginning, you know, you had Glaxo and Wellcome and um, United Therapeutics, and you had some of the larger pharma companies here, which then of course, created some ecosystem with regards to talent and, and people leaving and starting their own companies and just kind of this natural evolution. Um, I think it's really the start of, um, you know, CROs. Then I would say we kind of, you know, became less of less known for kind of our, our large pharma companies and more for our services. So CROs, obviously quintiles, um, has it begin, had its beginnings and um, here, as well as PPD, Fred Esch so Fred Eshelman and um, Dennis Gillings, you know, Fred Eshelman, if you go to UNC's campus, you know, he named the pharmacy school and the Gillings School of Public Health. So, so there was just this natural, um, really, um, birth and development of this whole service industry that started here in RTP. So then we, you know, became known for that. I think in the last decade, What's been really exciting, especially um, selling gene therapy and manufacturing, is we're really now the manufacturing hub um, for a lot of these new technologies. And and you can't open, um, you know, the Raleigh News and Observer or the um, uh, Triangle Business Journal any day without some company making a, a large investment in manufacturing. And and so you know that's really high skilled wage, um, high-paying high jobs, high technical skills um, th that we're seeing. Um, I haven't looked at the numbers lately, but obviously a significant um, number of, of multinationals have, um, you know, 500-plus um, factories here, um, you know, manufacturing their, um, their products. And so, again, when you talk about human capital and how important that is to the success of anything, you know, that skilled workers that then are then leaving and creating their own thing. And so there's this like kind of self-fulfilling flywheel that takes place when then people leave, become entrepreneurs, start their own thing, et cetera. And so it, it is a great um, it, uh, place for innovation coupled with, I mean, you know, really probably seated in, in university. So that really early stage science all the way through, you know, manufacturing, commercialization, et cetera. Um, and so you're, you're lucky to tap into that. I think, you know, in, in the past, people would critique um, RTP for saying, oh, you don't have, we don't have a large um, investment community and that, that sometimes holds us back. I will say um, post-COVID, all of it's fair game, right? Um, so I think what we're seeing um, in RTP is people, one, want to live here. It, it, for those of you that haven't been here, it's a beautiful place. Um, 80 degrees this week, you know, first of March, the tulips are, da daffodils are out. Great, great quality of life. Um, on top of this great uh, knowledge base, uh, innovative kind of culture that exists. And up until 18 months ago, I would say you could also afford to live here. I will say housing prices have gone through the roof in the last 18 months. But 
So you just kind of couple all of that together and, and really create um, a place that people want to live and work. Um, and I think that that has made us really successful. I can't imagine personally um, living anywhere else or, um, you know, doing the work that I do. And now in this kind of post-COVID COVID environment, when you have that choice, I think more and more people are, are choosing to live here, which just is bringing more and more talent in um, to the area. But I don't think that's a, a, a barrier anymore. So Travis and I do live a mile down the road from each other. We could live a thousand miles apart, I think, today and work just as effectively together. Um, but it is nice to, to run into each other or be able to, you know, have the coffee or what have you um, to just kind of continue facilitate communication, et cetera. Yeah, but Travis. That's awesome. Yeah, and Travis, I'll cut it over to you in one second here. You know, I, the first time I was at RTP was in, in 2015. Um, and, uh, we were down, I was down there to see, um, Becton Dickinson, which has a location down yep. there. And, um, yeah, it's just, it was, it, it was still, it was built, but it was still being built even more, but it was really impressive. Just the feel. I remember going from company to company. Cause we saw a lot of startups there as well in, in, uh, ophthalmology and, um, a few other spaces. There was like a dental company. We saw a heart, a heart, uh, cardiovascular company. There was just so many different things we saw, but what was really cool was the, the preservation of like the woods. A lot of the companies sat back off the road behind these trees, but there'd be these signs. It just aesthetically, it was very pleasing and exactly what you would think of when you think of like North Carolina. And so I, I couldn't agree more. And this is just from an outsider's perspective, but uh, really enjoyed it. But uh, Travis, curious on what you have to add, agree or disagree with. Oh, I, I agree with that. I mean, everything Meg said, I'm just shaking my head and I can't, I, I'm not going to be able to give such a great, you know, background with all that history, but I just, you know, I left RTP, you know, I went to college and then med school and, um, you know, I grew up here and all I, all I've wanted to do, and you can ask my wife is get back here at every stage. And, and eventually, you know, we had young kids and, um, and my wife got a job, um, you know, the Durham VA, uh, she's the hospitalist there. And so, um, you know, and finally I was able to move back home and it's been, you know, it, it's just something about the place. I agree. The trees, the, you know, the evergreens, the fact that the beach and the, um, uh, the beach and the mountains are, you know, relatively close two hours away each way. And, um, you know, in the, in the local community, I, it's, it's just a, it's a wonderful place. And, um, and, 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 and nothing gets, I lived in Boston for four years. I think Boston's a great place. I'm not going to pick on it. Um, but it just snowed in April at the end of April one year. And I just, I, <laughs> I was somebody with, you know, you know, in blood, I just, I said, I personally, I, I have to, I have to go back to North Carolina. Yeah. So. Yeah. If you're, if you're not born into it and lived your entire life in it, it's, uh, I could see how it'd be a bit of a shock for you. Um, yeah. So, um, Meg, back, back to you for a quick question as well. Um, I had written down, you know, after your second company, maybe it was your third, you, you said you took a six month break and you were like, I thought I was done. And then six months later, you're, you're like, just kidding. I'm back into it. Um, tell me about, can you just talk about the importance of like, as an entrepreneur, um, and, and if you're not an entrepreneur, you might not get it just yet. Um, but I could tell you like for my own entrepreneur journey, I'm, I don't know, uh, 15 months in being full-time in it. And, um, the importance of decompressing, uh, because it is stressful, right? It is a lot. Um, and, and so for you, 
how important was that six month gap for you after, you know, your second or third exit to say, okay, I, it's not that the fire's out. It's just, it's like the wax is burned down a little bit, right? Like I, yeah. I need to get that fire back. So how important was that for you? Um, well, I, I joke, I, I started target, um, which was my second company when I, um, I also had a baby the same year, basically uh, my second child. So, um, and I, told everyone that it took me a year to learn how to sleep again, um, post exiting. So, you know, I, I grew target from, we went from zero to 75 employees, you know, to 23 million of revenue in a, in a period of about 22 months. Um, and, and I, and I was raising this baby as well. So, um, needless to say, I didn't sleep much. Um, and you're exactly right. Like the, the worries, you know, always are there. Um, I can, you know, the, the first six months was, can I raise the money? The next six months was, can I get the customer? The next six months is, can I deliver? And, and honestly, then the majority of the rest of my worry is about the people, right? Can I get the right people fast enough? How do I, how do I build the team? How do I keep the team motivated? How do I keep a culture? You know, all of that sort of stuff. And honestly, um, those were the nights I, I lost the most sleep um, because I had the um, you know, you, you have to learn as a leader how to, how to do things, work through others. And, and a lot of times I think entrepreneurs are so good at doing stuff themselves, but at some point you can't scale a company with, you know, N of one. And so it's learning how, how do you create a scalable, um, infrastructure and organization? And, and that's really hard, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. really hard to do. Um, so, so for me, the, the time off was, um, uh, really important to learn to sleep, to decompress a little bit. That being said, I think that um, you, I've got this in my blood, and um, I thought it was going to be a lot more relaxing. You know, people take time off and go do a triathlon or things like that. And in retrospect, I probably should have done something more uh, uh, personally enriching. Um, but instead, I had this little engine in my brain that I just could not shut off, and it um, becomes unproductive really quickly when that when that engine's going around silly stuff. And so it's like, how do I how do I reapply that engine back to things that are going to really make a difference in people's lives at, at scale, which is what drug development does. Um, so I and 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 the just the intellectual. Um, interaction and curiosity with people on a day-to-day -day basis of solving problems together. I do think that um, now having a couple of successful exits, the, um, the, it, it's a different type of, mo you know, motivation and burn, right? Um, and the, the, uh, the, the boats may not have been burned, but now you're doing it for different reasons. And, and it's kind of transitioned more to, how can I get this out there to really make a difference in patients' lives quick, you know, more quickly, um, et cetera? How can I do things more efficiently? How can I do things better? How can I do things with others, you know, better? How, 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 do, I, how do I continue to, to grow and learn and not just kind of sit back and, and let things happen? So, so I, uh, while the time was important from a, a probably a physical recovery perspective, it also just reminded me that, um, the next go round, there probably won't be a six month sabbatical, maybe a month in Tahiti, but not a six month sabbatical. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's funny that you say that because like I, uh, anytime we talk to entrepreneurs who <clears throat> have had an exit and they're like, you know, if you talk to them like two months before the exit, they're like, I'm taking time off after. And 
you can almost without a doubt guarantee they are going to be right back into something because they just it's their personality it's just in them um it just doesn't happen so that's i just wanted to get the your perspective on that um Travis, let me bounce it back over, bounce it over to you here. I promise we're going to get to 501 Ventures and Bio54, but for, for Travis, I'm curious on, okay, you're a critical care doctor, you have um, startups you're supporting, you're involved in the venture fund. Talk to me about time management for you, <laughs> um, and, and, and also maybe a little bit about, you know, how does that you brought up earlier in the call about you know delaying the reward as a physician. I have three. I, we we uh, I had six or I had seven people on my wedding party when I got married. Three of them are physicians. All three of them, well, two of them have just became become attendings. And the conversations I have with them about them being burnt out already is frequent. Right. Um, and, uh, and then the, the, the third one is going to be an attending, uh, he's doing his fellowship next year, uh, but he'll be an attending. He talks about the same thing. He's still an attending, right. Or he's sorry, he's still a, a, a resident. And so, you know, I, I, I'm curious on has the diversity and things you get to do maybe slowed that for you? Cause I mean, being, being a physician is, is exhausting. It's tiring. Um, it's a lot of work to get there. I'm just curious on, on your take on this as that diversification, time management, getting a taste of other things, has that maybe made you feel less burnt out as a physician or helped in any way? Before he answers this question, I just need the audience to know that Travis does not sleep, and nor do I think he ever will. Uh, he, he is 10 years younger than I am, so I, I, I try not to prepare myself, but 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 he, he his capacity is beyond any uh, human I know. So uh, anyway, everybody just needs to have that in perspective. <laughs> All right, well, so maybe this isn't the best person to ask. <laughs> It's an end of one, Dwayne, but no, it's yeah. a good question. And before I answer, I have to say, Dwayne, those friends that were in your wedding party must really like you because I remember being in residency and you you, you could choose, there were like, there was one, maybe two weddings you could do based on vacations and how much <laughs> you were working. So they all must really yeah, appreciate that's, it. That is, Travis, you are, you are not wrong. Uh, the the uh, one of them, he was the best man um literally had night shift the night before came on like two hours of sleep yeah you're right <laughs> well i know how that is so absolutely well i think the the first part is time management and so um you know when i was a uh when i was in residency and <clears throat> in fellowship i it was all about you know residency and fellowship and so you know one thing is and then you're, when you're working 80 to, you know, 90 hours a week, and then you become an attending where, you know, you work 40 to 60 hours a week, depending on your specialty, all of a sudden you have this found time. So, um, you know, for whatever that's worth. But, um, you know, I, I chose emergency medicine and critical care because it's shift work. So I don't have a clinic. You know, I, when, I, when I leave, I still think and care about the patients, but I'm not, you know, kind of called. So there's a very clear cutoff. And so I can go home and, you know, see my family or, you know, I can be off for a few days. And, and so that's, that's one benefit. Um, Probably the downside of working a 24 seven job is you realize just how much you can work, um, which is not always healthy, but, you know, my shifts are usually, you know, seven to five and then maybe, 
you know, three to 11 or 12, and then the overnight shift, which can be 11 to seven or eight or, you know, 10 to eight or 10 to seven or something, something like that. And so, you know, if I'm going to work an overnight shift, it's, it's hard for me to just sit still all day, you know, before that shift. And so I can, you know, find some time to, to do things. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful that my hobby and I, and I found, you know, kind of, startups and, and it's it's just a it's, it's something I really enjoy doing you know I love reading about all the new things coming out for and even not in my field so you know cell therapy Meg mentioned gene therapy you know the new you know new Alzheimer drugs and I see all these pro- I also see all these problems in the hospital where you know we have a lot of research on all these different kinds of conditions but there's so many problems left to be solved I think I I made a list one day when I was in residency of all the things and questions I had and studies to be done on. And I had to stop because there's just, there's just so many, um, which is one of the fun parts of medicine. It's, it's, there's a lot of science and data, um, but it's still an art, you know, you still, um, you know, every patient is in a randomized control, double blind clinical trial. They have all these different things. And so, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, the mix of, uh, I can't remember who said it, but the mix of science and soul. And so, you know, it's that art that, that keeps me engaged. And, and then I think um, maybe not so cleanly, but we'll transition to burnout. And that could be an hour and a half talk itself. And uh, if you look at the physician specialties with the two highest rates of burnout, it's emergency medicine and critical care, which are the two fields of medicine that I practice in. Um, and I don't do an ER anymore. I do full-time uh, critical care. Um, and, and I love it, but it can be exhausting. And during, during COVID, I, you know, I, I think I hit all the markers for bon- burnout, you know, it was just, I mean, you know, so much, Yeah, it was like, a, I don't want to downplay our armed forces, but it was like a war. I mean, death every day and, and you're, you're gowning up and going into each patient's room and, and you have very, you have very little that you can offer once you get to a point. And, um, uh, and so there was a lot of, um, you know, uh, thoughts of burnout there, but, but working with bio, uh, 54 and Solus and and meeting all you know so many interesting people working on so many different things that could impact you know future generations of patients has really fed into my clinical practice. I think it's made me a better better doctor as well because I'm I'm more aware of what's out there and what could help patients. You know we have patients come in that hey maybe they're a candidate for a you know metastatic melanoma clinical trial that's going on you know at xyz you know maybe their you know maybe their eosinophilic asthma could be better treated by you know some new agent that had i not been in this you know this area i wouldn't know about and those are just you know a few possibilities yeah that's awesome um okay so i want to end on uh two things here um so Meg, I, I guess, you know, or Travis, whoever one wants to give the kind of what you're doing with Bio 54. Um, and then we're going to end with um, a question for for each of you. Um, so so who wants to take the Bio 54? Because we, we, we know what 501 Ventures is doing. I get that. I love the setup, what you described, Meg. But what is Bio 54 doing? So, um, and, and Travis alluded to this, so Bio54, and this was his idea, right, is um, how can I make taking this unmet patient need, which is uh, there are, you know, 30 million patients on low-dose aspirin, you know, 3 to 4 million patients in the U.S. on antiplatelets, 8 to 9 million patients on anticoagulants that have nuisance bleeding, um, and, and you will 
you, there's all sorts of data about how once a patient goes on Coumadin or Warfarin or Plavix and how their quality of life changes because of their fear of bleeding. So you, you nick yourself shaving, you, you know, put a piece of paper or tissue on it, you're fine, you go on about your day. Um, someone on one of these meds does that and, and they're still bleeding three hours later, right? They can't get it to stop. Um, that, you know, their patients aren't gardening anymore because they're afraid to cut. Patients aren't cooking anymore because they're afraid they might slice, you know, slice a finger and then won't be able to get, get this bleeding to stop. And, and so, you know, what Travis had the, had the foresight and, and, and um, ability to do was like, this is a huge unmet patient need and there's nothing out there. So when that, you know, what happened to Travis, right, this patient shows up in the ER and he's like, he didn't need to be sutured. He wouldn't have need, needed to come in for medical medical care. So it's utilization of the healthcare system that he never really should have needed if there was something out there he could have taken care of himself. So, you know, that that's what we've done with Bio54 is we've created a, a drug device combination to put in patients' hands for use at home, for self-administration at home. So, you know, that the next time, that if, they ha if they're on warfarin, but they nick themselves shaving, there's a solution that will get that, that bleeding to stop in a more manageable time frame than, than they would without. And so that's, that's our product. And we're really excited. It has applications, um, you know, for topical. We, we have some patents filed around, um, you know, nosebleeds, et cetera. But how do, how do we decrease the time to hemostasis for these patients so that their quality of life is not impacted in the same way? And how can they manage that themselves without utilizing the healthcare system as, as they are today? And so that's what we're doing. Um, we are, we'll have a phase two study readout, um, you know, in the end of Q2 of this year. We're really excited about that. And then we'll, we'll look at that and, and take the opportunity to figure out whether we keep going or whether that's the point where we look for a strategic partner that can take it all the way. We, we've made some fantastic progress with the FDA about this indication and, and what that would look like. So, um, I'll, I think it's an exciting couple of months for us um, as, as we see this come together. But um, I, I know this, that, that if we can make this work, that there are millions of patients that will have a, a positive impact. Awesome. Um, so, Travis, I'm going to go to you for two questions, and then I'm going to end it with, with, with Meg. Um, the first question to you is, you are around startups, right, through uh, your work with 501 Ventures, Bio54, but also through Solus Bio Ventures as well. What is the most common error, or one of them, that you see in uh, entrepreneurs, whether you invest in them or whether you just see them, but in the companies you see, what is, what is one of the biggest common trip-ups you see? Ooh, um, that's a good question. Um, I should probably almost draw my own experience. So, so what, what were all the errors I made when I first started um, uh, Alacrity Medical back before meeting Meg and the 501 Ventures team? But yeah. I think the biggest one I see with, and this is with, I think, novice and early entrepreneurs is um, being afraid to give away equity <laughs> um, or to you know, have investors, you know, you talk to people and they have a good idea. Um, and it doesn't mean being capital inefficient, but it means just, you know, you have a good idea, but they don't want to um, take investors or they don't want to, you know, maybe give some even small amounts of sweat equity. 
And what I have really realized, and it's cliche because it's true, is, you know, 100% of zero is zero. And so, and I had that too, you know, when I was told that, hey, you know, maybe we should, you know, partner with 501 Ventures. I said, no, this is my idea. I'm going to do it. And, and then I came around and I said, look, there's all these areas of expertise. You eat some humble pie and realize that you don't know everything. And a lot of people have spent, you know, a lot of time um, gathering all this expertise. And so, um, you know, I try and tell new entrepreneurs that, and I think as you move on, move on the entrepreneurial, you know, if I ever have another entrepreneurial venture, I won't, I won't be afraid of that. And, um, but I think it's, you know, you do have to balance being smart with equity and not just giving it away, which is probably another error that early entrepreneurs make. You know, you give 5% to your friend and um, who's your co-founder, but who, you know, it, you know yep. it, it's not as invested as you are. Yeah. So uh, Renee Ryan, she is the CEO of Cala Health. Uh, she was at our uh, Houston Startup Symposium last year. And on one of the panels, she got asked a question about equity and she said, no one has ever died from dilution, but they have died from lack of cash. And so uh, <laughs> it was it was one of those points because they were going back and forth on investor versus entrepreneur and getting the right deal. And she said, listen, at some point, just got to go with it. Um, so anyways, I wanted to bring that up. Um, it's a great point. Um, next question for you is, again, you are an early stage, Solus Bioventures is an early stage investor. We have had 113 episodes of MedTech Money. Um, we probably, half of those episodes have been with investors. Not a single investor has ever said they've invested in the solution, but rather the problem and the team. Um, so for you, what is the single most investable um, trait that you look for when you are evaluating a team? Well, you know, it's it's unfair to first time entrepreneurs, but the um, and I'll draw I'll draw a correlation. But the um, the, the single most important and, and great thing to see is they've done it before. You know, <laughs> they've yeah. they've been there before. You know, what's you know, and that, that happens in medicine, too. You know, what's the highest risk, you know, um, you know, uh, cardiovascular disease, what about in your family had it or you've had a heart attack before, you know, or, you know, mm -hmm. things like that prior instances of that issue. So um, it's similar. If you've done it before, if you've walked the walk and, and made it to an exit or two, you know, that's probably the best thing you can say. Now, and I've been a first-time entrepreneur as well and still am very early. And so I know that's not satisfying to the first-time entrepreneurs out there. And so you have to, um, you know, for first-time entrepreneurs um, who are founders or, you know, the CTO or CSO or things like that, and they have a new company with, and they think it's a good idea is I think surrounding yourself with people that have been there then um, because um, you know, I really like looking at teams and if it's a first time founder um, you know, fresh out of grad school that uh, but then on their board is, you know, the board is really experienced and then they're maybe they're the technical or the science, the chief science officer or something. And they're, CEO is, you know, just came off their second or third exit or is coming off, you know, uh, you know, mid-sized or, you know, anywhere, but has had success and demonstrated it. Um, uh, that's important. Yeah, no, that's, I, I, I love that. Um, and I, I love that you kind of tied that together because that's, that's really important for first-time entrepreneurs. Maybe that changes how they put together their pitch deck. 
right? Maybe in the pitch deck, you do show your advisory team and your partners to show that you have this support network around you. So Travis, I love that advice. Um, Meg, we're going to end with you. Um, as the, the serial entrepreneur, at least that's how you identify now, um, tell me about uh, what is, if, if someone's listening in, they're a first-time entrepreneur, um, they want to get to where you have, have got, what is your single piece of advice for them? <laughs> you've, and you've, you've littered a ton throughout this entire episode, right? Uh, yeah. But I always like to give that one chance at the end to say, like, if you take anything away from this, take this. Yeah. So, you know, uh, uh, my biggest piece of advice, which we've already talked about, is the team and the people that you put around you or the idea. But um, the next piece of advice is um, make the best decision you can each day with the information you have. And you're never going to have perfect information and don't wait for perfect information. But all you can do, you're going to have lots of challenges. And all you can do is take all of the data assemble that you have at the moment, assemble and, and, and get to the next point. Always have the end in mind, right? You know, you, but, but know that, you know, by, by making the best decision each day, that, that accumulates and gets you to the best outcome possible. Awesome. Um, great way to end it. Um, so for those listening in, up or down an inch, depending on the, the platform you're listening on, there'll be Meg's LinkedIn, Travis's LinkedIn, links to the 100 different companies they're working with. <laughs> At least it's what it feels like. Uh, I'll put the links in there on the for the for the different websites as well. Um, Meg and Travis, thank you so much for your time. This was great. Uh, I personally learned a lot. Uh, I know the listeners will uh, hang on for one minute, and we'll chat offline. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.